Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into your word and for the opportunity to gather together to worship, uh, to spend time with brothers and sisters in the Lord, to encourage each other's hearts, and to uh, focus, uh, just take some time out of our busy week uh, to focus on what you accomplished on the cross, what that means in our lives, and, and Father, just that rest that we can find in you. So we lift this morning up to you. May you uh, cause the distractions of this life to fall away and allow us to focus on your word at this moment. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to pick up from where we left off last week. And this was one of those sermons that you do a little wrestling with. You spend some time with it. And partway down, I got a text from Yun saying, Sermon? So we texted him back and said, Aren't you doing it? Uh, he usually prints it off for me in the morning, and uh, it was one of those times I hadn't sent it off, and I knew I hadn't sent it off. Um, I was still wrestling a little bit with the text this morning, exactly what to say and how, how to approach it. Not that I didn't have it written, but there's still so much when you jump into the Beatitudes. So that's where we'll pick up again. We're going to look at the second Beatitude, or Paradoxical Proclamation. Matthew 5 Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Or one might say, how happy are those who know what sorrow. That was the Phillips. And, and, and in the Young's translation, happy the mourning. Now, how odd it is to take the concept of mourning and link it, this isn't going to work like that, link it with happiness, especially to a generation like mine that grew up with the Bobby McFerrin song. You all know it. Don't worry. Be happy. Come on, face it. That's been the soundtrack to many of our lives, and it's going through your mind even as I say it. Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry. Be happy. In every life, we have some trouble. But when we worry, you make it double. Don't worry, be happy. Don't worry, be happy now. Now, you do a Google search, and they are, there are tons of articles. They're in abundance of how to be a happy person, listing everything from smiling more to exercising, sleeping more, eating better, right the way through to if you declutter your house, you'll be happier. I must admit, that's something I'm going to miss with Lisa. Lisa would go into the office and empty the garbage, and she'd always straighten out my desk if it was messy. I'm the mad professor, papers everywhere. But you can also be happy by ditching your phone or spending less time on social media. Now, admittedly, some of the ideas when you read through these lists are a little redundant. Many are just plain common sense, and others are rooted in some sort of scientific study. But missing in all that I read was this concept of mourning. In Webster's, I looked up, and it defines that as an act of sorrow. And in their definitions, they define the word as an outward sign of grief for a person's death. An example, a wife wearing all black. This is still practiced today by many. But it also, it talked about, 
in some communities, it referred to a period of grief where the outward signs would be there and it would stay for a long period of time. In the Victorian era, they would refrain from ordinary dress for oftentimes up to a year, dressing in black and the little veil in front of their face. Some widows would dress that way for the rest of their lives. But today, when someone passes, we have celebrations of life. Often, not always, but often black is not donned, and you'll find very few people wearing black at a funeral. To the point that many will feel an inward pressure to return to life in a shorter span than they would like. Our world will allow for grief, but only for a time. And then we begin to find it awkward. And, and we almost want to see them move on. And this can be true in faith communities. The reason it can be true in faith communities is the emphasis on 1 Thessalonians 4.13. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. So nowhere does it say that we can't grieve. It's just we grieve differently. We grieve in a diff- we process a little differently because there is hope. But we still mourn. We still grieve. So if you find yourself in that position today where someone has passed away close to you, grieving is a process. It's something you have to walk through. And in grieving, in mourning, we can learn things. That's what it says in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 7, 2 through 4. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth or merriment, laughter, a, a party. Like how one translation puts it, it's better to go into the house of mourning than to go into a house of feasting, since that is the end of all mankind, and, li- and the living should take it to heart. Grief is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure." The point of the passage is that it's not that you shouldn't laugh and you shouldn't enjoy feasts and all the rest of that, because there's a place for that. After all, Christ himself went to wedding feasts. He involved himself in community feasts. They would celebrate the grace of God to them and all that, all that was taking place around in their communities. Some would say they celebrate God's common grace. We do it through something like Thanksgiving, His common grace to all mankind, the air that we breathe, the soil that produces food for us, just the relationships that we can have with family. I like what one commentator had to say concerning these verses, and he focused in on verse 3. The second half of the verse states why sorrow is better than laughter. 
By sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Sorrow can have a positive spiritual impact on the heart, the soul of man. Through sorrow, we can consider the seriousness of life, evaluate our situation, and make changes to improve our lives. See, at a time of mourning, we begin to center ourselves again. We begin to understand the seriousness of life and, and, and the shortness of life, the brevity. Robert Hamilton Browning was an American poet. He was born in the late 1800s. His daughter, Virginia Hamilton Adair, may be better known. She wrote Ants on the Melon, but he authored the following. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word she said, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. I couldn't find a whole lot about Mr. Browning and his life, but I have to wonder if Ecclesiastes did not inspire this poem. We can find an example of this type of mourning in Genesis. Genesis chapter 23, the first couple of verses. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. I find the older I get, the more I experience this type of mourning. The deep loss of a, of a parent, a spouse, a sibling, close relatives, a good friend. We've all been there. As believers, we weep for ourselves. We don't weep for them. We weep for ourselves. We will miss them. They are not going to miss us. Well, it's hard to admit they're in the presence of God. They're in the presence of their Creator, completely whole. Why would they ever want to come back here? They are in the presence of the Almighty. They're not going to want to come back to live among us. And despite the pain that we all know will eventually come our way, we choose to love. See, God designed us for relationships. We were never designed for death. Death is our wages for sin. Death is the result of our sin. In Psalm 42, 1 through 3, we read about another type of mourning found in the Bible. And there will be times in life when you and I feel separated from God. There will be times where estranged is maybe too strong of a word, but there are times when you will feel far off from God, like an outsider looking in. And I think it's common. I certainly hope it is. I have felt that from time to time. And, and I think that's why the sons of Korah, who penned Psalm 42 in the Psalter, said this. 
As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? And they close with verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. It's in these times when we mourn and we have inner turmoil. Inside, it's just rolling through us. We need to remember what we're told from Scripture. We need to remember things like Matthew chapter 28, the second half of verse 20. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's where verses like Isaiah 41.10 come to mind. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And again from the New Testament, the author of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, keep your life free from money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You've probably heard the story of uh, a couple. They've been married 40 years or so. Do you remember the old bench seats? How many... I may remember the old bench seats, right? Okay, so they've been married for 40 years. They're driving on their way to church one day, and the wife looks over, and she says, Dear, he says, yeah. He says, you just really don't cuddle with me like you used to. You always used to be beside me. He looked over to her, and he looked down at the bench seat, and he patted the spot beside him, and he says, Well, dear, it wasn't I that moved. And we need to remind ourselves of that. That when we feel far off, it's not God that's moved. It's not God that's moved away from us. But things in life, things that happen in our patterns of everyday life, we can drift much e- very easily from Him. But God is still there, still reaching out, still wanting to be involved. He is still faithful to his promises. But what, what does Matthew 5, 4 mean then? There are some types of grief we find in Scripture. Well, let's think of last week. If you recall, we discussed this concept that the Beatitudes were progressive. They built one upon another. So if they build upon one another, then that will give us the clue to what this means here. Therefore, blessed are those who mourn, builds upon the verse 3, which says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So once you come to the realization that you are spiritually bankrupt, that there is nothing that you can do of your own to repair that relationship between you and God, that you are empty, once you realize that, then it says you will inherit the kingdom of God because it's then that you come to God and say, I can't do it. 
but he's done it all for us. And the natural outgrowth, because sin has separated us, and when we realize that that sin has separated us from God, and we can't reach up to him, but he reaches down to us, the natural outgrowth of understanding that we are spiritually bankrupt is to mourn. To mourn over the predicament to which we find ourselves in. Some theologians refer, this, refer to this as godly sorrow. So we understand that we're separated from God, that we cannot reach to Him, that we fall short, and we mourn. We mourn our sin. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The New Living Translation really clarifies this for us. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. This type of sorrow that we speak of in Matthew 5.4 will lead you to repentance. Read you to repentance first in regards to your salvation, which leads us to the inheritance of the kingdom of God. This can be seen in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. The young man rejects everything of his father. He just turns it aside and says, I want nothing to do with it except the money. He wants his inheritance. He wants the money, so he takes the money. He demands his inheritance, and then he leaves to live like the world. Wine, woman, and song. That's what he wanted. That's what he went for. Luke 15, 13 says, A few days later, his younger son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. You may recall at the same time as he's partying away and wasting his money, what happens? A famine strikes in this distant land. Food is in short supply. Inflation goes through the roof. The young man had no money, and ironically, the only job he could get was feeding pigs. How ironic is that? A young Jewish man feeding those unclean animals. Luke five seventeen through 19. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. Literally bankrupt, eating what the pigs get, he realizes his sin and he mourns over it. He repents. And approaching his father humbly, he says this in verse 21. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy 
of being called your son. Godly sorrow, as illustrated here, leads to repentance. Mourning, though, today is is out of vogue. Rarely spoken of, especially in our churches. Turn with me to Psalm 51, and as you turn there, I want to tell you the, the backdrop to Psalm 51. An illustration slightly different, but it's still about mourning, and I think a secondary meaning to our verse 4 in chapter 5 of Matthew. The mourning of a child of God who has sinned. You can read the whole story yourself in 2 Samuel chapter 11, but I'm going to give you a synopsis of it. In the spring of the year, when the kings normally go out to war, David stayed home. Rather than leading his people as expected, David stayed in Jerusalem. Then one afternoon, after resting, he got up and he walked on the roo- around the rooftop of the palace. See, the palace was high enough that he could peer into other homes and on other rooftops. And as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. And instead of walking away, he stayed. He let the scene play out in his mind, and the lust grew. And as king, he could have had any single woman in the kingdom. We know at this point he had already at least two wives, but he wanted to know who she was. And he was told, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now see, Uriah was counted as one of David's mighty men, an elite group. So David knew who he was. He was one of his elite soldiers. If Uriah was Canadian, he belonged to Joint Task Force 2. David sent for her. She came, they had an affair, she became pregnant. Then David was in need to cover up his sin. He had a plan, and he sent a message to Joab to have Uriah return and and give an update on what was happening in the battle. After meeting David, he encouraged Uriah to go home to be with his wife. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night in the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. David's plan failed, and Uriah remained loyal to David. He remained loyal to the men that were left on the battlefield. He refused to make himself comfortable and go home to be with his wife. He felt that that would be a betrayal because no one else could do it. So on the second night, David resorted to getting Uriah drunk. But even in that state, Uriah remained loyal not returning home to enjoy the pleasures there. So on the third day, David arranges for Uriah's death. The only person who could figure out that Bathsheba's baby was not his, Uriah was stationed where the the fighting was the fiercest. And at the height of the battle, Joab was instructed to pull his troops back. And he did. And Uriah died. But not only did Uriah die for David's sin, other soldiers died too. They died because of the betrayal of their king to cover up his sin. Verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard 
that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When, a period, when the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. See, Psalm 51 is a song about David's response to Nathan confronting him over his sin. You'll recall the story, right? Nathan confronts David and he says, Hey, I, I, I need your help with something. Sorry, I got veggie tales going through my mind. Um, I need your help with something. There was this rich man and he had all these sheep. And there was this poor man who had one little sheep. And he cuddled that sheep. He doted on that sheep. It was the only sheep he had. Then one day there was this visitor coming through town. And as the visitor came through town, he stayed with the rich man. And while he stayed at the rich man's house, the rich man provided for him. But not with one of the thousands of sheep that he may have had. No, no, no. He went over and took the one sheep, the one poor sheep, and he slaughtered that sheep to provide for his visitor. Well, David was outraged. How could somebody do this? The man that had everything took from the man that had hardly anything. Until Nathan stated, you are that man. Then David moved from outrage to brokenness. When David was confronted with his sin, Psalm 51 was the response. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and have done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Create in me, verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And then in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Well, how that psalm begins. We're familiar with that word. Have mercy on me, O oh God, according to your, can you guess what word that is? Has said your loving kindness, your steadfast love. David mourns. 
He, he has sinned before an almighty God. He cheated with another man's wife, and he had him murdered and a few others along with him. And in faith, he asked God to cleanse him. Or as verse 10 says, create in me a new heart. In his mourning, there's a recognition that he sinned, and he sinned against God, and it was sin because God declared it to be so. David understood that his fellowship had been broken between himself and God, and he was in need of restoration. This is more than just a kid getting caught with their hand in the cookie jar. They're more sorry they get caught than anything else. And unfortunately, sometimes in the church, this is how it's treated. Many followers of Christ, or those who at least claim to follow Christ, are not much different than the kid being caught in the cookie jar. I've, and I don't say this judgmentally. I've listened to a lot of sermons. I've watched numerous preaching and YouTube videos, and I get I mourn over the fact that Christianity is whitewashed at times. Sin is not mentioned. There's no concept of mourning. It's sort of all cleaned up. Listen to some of the church services. Go on YouTube to some of the popular videos. Missing is this concept that you would ever mourn over your sin. Instead, you'll find people talk of verses of how God has a plan for you. And that's correct. God does have a plan for us. But they're lifted out of context. Why? Well, talking about mourning isn't attractive to many. At least it's, it's not attractive, not as attractive as saying, hey, God has a plan for you. Come to Him and, and everything will be well. All your dreams will come true. The reality is these false teachers are selling a false gospel. Spiritual bankruptcy leads to mourning and mourning over your personal sin. It's all part of repentance. Boyce, an American theologian, states this. Jesus was speaking of individual mourning, but he also spoke of individual comforting. And the combination seemed to suggest that the primary mourning should be individual over his own spiritual condition. This is a mourning for sin. I would suggest when you understand that you're spiritually bankrupt, it is natural to mourn over your sin, whether it's first coming to Christ or whether it's restoration to that relationship with him. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. David messed up. He asked to be forgiven. He repented. When was the last time you or I have mourned over our sin? Where we have found ourselves broken? When we understood that our actions broke the heart of God? When was the last time we mourned over the sin in our world? The state of the Christian church? See, in the name of God, there have been a lot of awful things that have happened in our world. 
There are Christian denominations that are refusing to come clean on things that have taken place behind closed doors and to deal with them. Do we mourn over what has happened to the church of Christ here in Canada and around the world? Do we mourn when we see shootings in schools? Do we mourn when we turn on the news? Do we mourn like Christ did in Luke 19:41 when Jesus wept over Jerusalem? He wept over Jerusalem because he he knows how much they have rejected again and again God's loving kindness. His has said directed to them. Matthew 5:4 says, "Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted." The first comfort is our deliverance from sin's penalty. Our first comfort is the fact that we will be delivered from the way our wages that we earned, that is death. How comforting is that? That we can simply trust our eternal destination to God's promises found in the first beatitude, that we will inherit the kingdom of God. Our comfort comes from our assurance of salvation. 2 Corinthians 1.4 states, Who comforts us in all our affliction, affliction so that we are able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort which, with which we ourselves are comforted by? So the first comfort is that we're saved and that we can trust in Christ and that we will spend an eternity with Him. The second comfort comes from the Spirit of God that communes with our spirit, the Holy Spirit to comfort us. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or from Philippians, and we talked about this about a month ago, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The comfort from Matthew 4 begins with that relationship with Christ Jesus repenting and coming to faith in Christ. It, it continues as we take seriously sin and we walk in obedience to Christ. I frankly am unsure how we cannot mourn when we look at the world that we live in. How far Christian churches and how far, I'm not saying all Christian churches, but how far we have wandered from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how far our world around us. We live in a world that tries to cover that up. We live in a world that is continually trying to cover up their pain. They cover it up through entertainment, online social media use to bolster their perceived friend count. But yet the pain remains. We continually not only decriminalization of drugs, but legalization. And then we begin to promote it and advertise it as people seek to relieve their pain and their boredom. And that continues. 
Then there's the sexual exploitation in and outside of the church. Do we mourn for these things? Do we mourn over our own sin? Or do we entertain ourselves on sin that God is displeased with? So when we mess up, God is faithful and just to forgive us. But do we really mourn over when we make a mistake? And I don't think we're called to live there forever. That's not what I'm saying. But do we mourn over it and say, Lord, I have sinned? Do we take it seriously? When we take it seriously, God has promised that he will comfort us. Sin is not to be entertaining. Sin breaks that fellowship with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. And Father, as we look at the world around us, and even as we look at some of the evangelical churches and the struggles that they have, um, Father, help us to mourn. Help us to understand the seriousness to which you place on sin and that call to holiness. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning, Father, they know that they're spiritually bankrupt and they're mourning over sin in their own life. May they understand that you love them, that the cross is there to extend forgiveness. And Father, when we mess up, may we take it seriously. May we come before you and mourn and understand, but also know that you are faithful to forgive us and that we can have a clean heart created in ourselves and that we don't have to live in the sin of the past, but we can live in forgiveness. We can learn from it. Father, we thank you for the Beatitudes, and this morning we do mourn. We mourn over a world that continually rejects you, though they can turn on a radio station and hear about you. They can watch sermon after sermon. The gospel is so available to the world around us, and they still reject. And we mourn over that. We mourn at how people treat each other. Father, may we be the difference in this world. Salt and light. We thank you for this opportunity to be witnesses for you and for this opportunity to gather this morning to worship and to look to your word. In Christ's name, amen.